0: This is the Breaking Bad Advice Podcast, the show that is dedicated to helping you stay rational in these irrational times. Here's where I remind you that the following thoughts and conversations are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Please reach out to your financial professional at Plan Financial to discuss your unique situation and circumstances. All right, well, welcome, everybody, to the inaugural episode of Breaking Bad Advice, the show that is dedicated to keeping you rational during these irrational times. I'm your host, Joel Hooper, and alongside me is financial advisor, wealth manager, and most importantly, friend, Isaac Halls. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, before we get started, uh, I think it'd be good to give our listeners some background on ourselves Uh, a little bit of what has got us into this industry uh i'll start i have been doing this since i was five um (laughs) i've been been bringing the coffee to my dad since i was five i guess i should clarify that um no but kind of getting into high school and college i really had a lot of great conversations with my dad uh what was he did how he was able to help people and that really really intrigued me and so when i got into college i uh, majored in finance and um Shortly thereafter, I've uh, graduated from college. I joined the firm full-time, had my Series 65, got that out of the way, and uh, the rest
1: is history. That's great, and uh, yeah, we're we're happy to have you, and it's been fun to to work with you the last couple of years. And so um, I uh, have been here actually almost nine years. I a little have, bit longer than me. Yeah, a little bit. I've been doing it since I was seven, so <laughs> no. Uh, uh, but uh, I have a... Um, I have a, a, certification. I'm a chartered retirement planning counselor. Um, I, as well, when I got into the industry, got my series six and my series seven, excuse me, and my series 66, um, and my life insurance, um, uh, license as well. Um, and I'm currently in the middle of a master's program in economics, trying to, um, expand my horizon and, uh, and help our clients, um, better achieve their goals. And speaking of that, that's, um, what we do here at plant financials and RIA. We, um, are completely independent. We act as a fiduciary for our clients, making sure that um, all the advice we give them are in their, is in their best interests. Um, and really, fundamentally, what we do is just try to help them uh, make better financial decisions. Awesome. Well, you know
0: what? Let's just go ahead and dive on in. We're going to talk about what what seems everyone is talking about today, and that is inflation. Um, we'll, we'll, maybe even touch a little bit on a possible scenario of deflation, but I want to, I want to touch on what everybody is mentioning right now. And we look back to July. Now, hopefully in the coming week or two, we'll see what August, uh, CPI numbers are, but let's take a look at July CPI numbers. They show a year over year increase of 5.4%. And for those of you who aren't familiar with CPI is, it's simply the consumer price index, um, It's the number that the government gives us, so take it with a grain of salt, Uh, but this is the first time since August of 2008 that we've had three consecutive months of the CPI reading greater than 5%. So Isaac, what's been the main driver of the current inflation we're seeing today, and is it a sustainable inflation? Is it transitory? Possibly both.
1: Yeah, and I think the challenge is trying to figure out um, what is the primary driver of these currently high uh, CPI prints. Uh, the first thing, though, I would like to point out is that, you, as you mentioned, the last time we had three consecutive months of a high CPI print like this was in the middle of 2008, which was followed up by 12 years of very low CPI prints, somewhere in the range of 2%. So um, while certainly three months of high CPI print is nothing to ignore, uh, it certainly doesn't mean anything in and of itself. So um, the other thing to factor into this is that the CPI, as you mentioned, is an index. And so the government, uh, as you said, we should take it with a grain of salt, rightfully so, because the government is arbitrarily choosing various aspects of the economy to measure. They're measuring how much their prices have increased or decreased over a certain period of time. And then what they're doing in order to accumulate that into an index is they're arbitrarily assigning weightings to each of those factors. Now, I'm not criticizing them and saying that they're doing a poor job of it, I'm simply pointing out the fact that it is ultimately quite arbitrary. Um, and so while the CPI may be useful uh, in some sense for measuring w- in general what prices are doing, um, we, we also need to recognize that when the CPI comes out and they say it's risen 5.4% for the year, that in no way is any sort of scientific measure. Um, and uh, the other thing I would, I would mention is that um, the headline CPI, being so high as it is the, the past few months can also is also very prone to um, uh, to being affected by outliers. So, for instance, early in the year we had a massive run up in lumber prices. Um, lumber now is back down to where it was before, but we've also had massive run ups in real estate and gas and, and other things uh, at different times. And what those things can do is if those things have a higher weighting according to the government's me- metrics, those can actually increase the CPI. More than it otherwise would be. So Yeah,
0: and I mean, you really you look at the, the direct transfer payments that have uh, come through from the government. Uh, you look at the extra unemployment that, for whatever reason, now there are a few states that have gotten rid of the extra unemployment, uh, and that has driven a decent amount of people back to work. But specifically here in California, we've seen the extra unemployment been, you know, prolonged. Um, so those you know direct transfer payments, I would assume would be more of the short-term aspect unless for whatever reason they say hey we're going to go ahead and make these
1: permanent yeah yeah exactly and i think um, as long as the expectation in the market is that these are temporary then i think we would expect that the uh, any impact they're having on the cpi is also going to be temporary Now, once that expectation changes and all of a sudden maybe the population or the government starts saying no we're making these things permanent then the impact they would have on on uh, inflation or the, the prices in general uh, would probably more likely be permanent at that point. Yeah,
0: yeah, and you know you look at supply chains. Um, we we saw a point where they, they were starting to open back up a little bit, and then this Delta variant um, came out, and that kind of threw a wrench in everybody's plans. There, uh, I was reading an article actually on Wall Street Journal uh, the other day, and it was about a spa manufacturer uh, based out of Utah, I believe, and it took roughly 1800 parts individual parts to put together a spot and a lot of these parts came from china different states within the u.s even and they were having trouble getting them to the warehouse to assemble you know there was the the shipping uh, area in san diego that was just getting completely backlogged because it didn't have enough workers the systems were just chaotic due to not having people there to you know receive all these shipments so they're work around there was hey we'll fly these parts into our you know our warehouse well what they had to do is they put all those parts together once those parts from the uh, shipping center came through eventually they had to rent out another warehouse so that just added another you know cost to that uh, building of that spa so but that that can all be traced back to that supply chain do you, do you feel that, you know, within the next year and a half, two years, we could see some kind of
1: normalcy again with the supply chain? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with whether or not we see another round of lockdowns and other restrictions from governments um, and whether this trend towards deglobalization, what I mean by that is trade barriers and less um, commerce between national borders. Um, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think that's a trend yet, but we have seen rumors or at least um uh, you know, messages from various world leaders um, threatening to do set something like that. And so if we do see more of that, then certainly I think the supply chain disruptions could continue. They may even get worse. Um, however, I would argue that at this point, um, yes, most of this pri- these price increases in various um, components of the economy, as you're mentioning, are temporary more than anything, because we did have a, a round of lockdowns last year. And um, as as uh, most um, scientists, economists would say, is you, you can't change just one thing, right? You change one thing in a, in a very complex economy, um, you tinker with one aspect of a human body, it's going to impact all the other aspects in various ways. And so um, these supply chain disruptions, I think it's the, the beautiful thing about capitalism is uh, creative entrepreneurs are going to find ways around this. Um, they're going to find ways to alleviate these stresses. But in the meantime, uh, it would not surprise me to continue to see some um, pressures on increased prices because of these disruptions.
0: Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, the, the ultra low interest rates don't help at all. And, um, you know, you've seen it, it's definitely helped out um, those who have currently owned a home or do own a home. They've been able to, you know, refinance on the way down or they've been able to, you know. Go ahead and take all this equity out of their house and go buy another house, but you know, really, definitely hurts the the, the first time homebuyers or you know the people who have sold their house back in twenty thirteen or fourteen, who were selling at the top, but then intervention continued and kind of got screwed over. So that kind of leads us into our next topic, which is everybody's favorite topic, interest rates. We've seen the Fed purchase about eighty billion in you know U.S. Treasury securities and roughly $40 in mortgage-backed securities every month. What's kind of their whole goal with these purchases, and what happens if and when, like Jay Powell is kind of alluding to, they begin tapering these asset purchases?
1: Yeah, well, I think their official goal, anyways, is to ease the credit markets with a quantitative amount of money. So what you're referring to is QE, as a lot of people know it in the news, uh, quantitative easing. And yeah, its official position is whenever there is any sort of stress in the economy, stress in the financial markets, the Federal Reserve uh, begins purchasing treasuries that are out in the economy um, and then exchanging those for newly created money. Um, And what that is supposed to do is to alleviate any sort of stress in the credit markets um, and help... Uh, assets to, to rebound if they are being sold off or, or that sort of thing. Um, that's at least the official position. And then, of course, by doing so, it encourages banks and other lenders to begin um, expanding credit, and hopefully that causes growth in the economy. And it definitely seems like you're seeing uh, uh, not as many banks expanding that
0: credit anymore. Um, a lot of people are you know having to go back to using credit cards and whatnot. But as far as loans being made out into the economy, it kind of seems like it's not a ton of it going on. So is that kind of the bank signaling, hey, we might be getting
1: near an end or? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, uh, I, I think there's there's a couple different aspects there. So um, yeah, the first one is uh, over the last 12 months or so, with with the exception of the PPP loans that came out, which were all government uh, guaranteed, um, banks have been very reluctant to expand their balance sheets. And, uh, and so uh, looking at QE, a lot of people assumed when it started back in, 2008, 2009, um, that it would be inflationary, that it would create a, 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 a more sustainable a rise in prices and an expansion of credit. And what we're finding, in fact, is that um, it's it really does no such thing, or at least it has not. Um, not in a broad-based uh, sense. It has not uh, encouraged banks to uh, expand their loans and their balance sheets and create new money. Uh, if anything, it's actually signaled to banks and others in the economy that maybe things aren't that good. And so they've gotten a little bit more conservative. And so even though you may have an increase in the monetary supply, even though the Federal Reserve may be trying to uh, ease financial conditions, the very fact that they're doing that may actually create more instability and fear in the private marketplace. Yeah.
0: And, and you might be a little bit more familiar with this, but back in uh, was it the late 90s when Japan was taking over the world, what, were you familiar with what they were doing with their interest rates? Were they taking them down just like they're, we're doing today? Um, and if so, did they ever reach a point where it made sense and it, and it actually worked for them?
1: Well, that's a good question. So the QE program that we've been doing for the last 12 years really was stolen, uh, not stolen, borrowed, uh, mimicked, (laughs) whatever, from the Japanese who started it in the early 2000s. Um, Japan struggled through the 90s. They have had uh, numerous recessions over the last 30 years. So they started doing QE in the early 2000s to supposedly boost lending and growth in their economy. Well, 20 years later, that's that really has not been the case. They have not been able to do that. Um, and if anything, their interest rates have gone down. Um, now, most people would say that's because the Japanese central bank is purchasing all of these bonds. Um, but there's another way to look at it. It doesn't have to be because they are purchasing the bonds. It could be simply because the private marketplace is less and less confident about future growth. And if they're less confident about future growth, that means they're willing to take a lower interest rate when they lend money and the japanese uh, bonds are going to be the safest asset they can they can own
0: yeah yeah and it kind of seems to me that that's kind of what we're seeing today in the u.s I mean, with the 10-year roughly trading about you know uh 130 i think maybe it's yep, to end of today if inflation was truly here and there was all this potential for future growth then you'd think that that would have to be a little bit higher. I mean, that's got to be the bond market signaling, yeah, we're not so sure about the future.
1: Yeah, fu- fundamentally from an economic perspective, bond bond yields or interest rates are really a reflection of three things. That is uh, growth expectations of the future, um, credit risk, and inflation expectations. And so when you have a, a risk-free rate, which is what people refer to the 10-year treasury bond uh, as, is a risk-free rate, meaning... The U.S. government's not going to default on their bond. They're going to give you your money back after 10 years. It may not be worth much, but they're going to give it back to you, right? Um, but when you see a yield at 1.3, what that's telling you is that, um, uh, obviously, we know credit risk isn't there, but uh, neither, then, is inflation risk or growth expectations. Both of those must be low for private uh, businesses, um, uh, and I would say you know, foreign central banks are owning, they own a lot of treasuries and even just individual investors in the, in the uh, domestic marketplace, for them to continue to buy those bonds at those prices where the, the interest rates are so low uh, would require that both their expectations for inflation and future growth are both very, very low. Right, right. And, you know, who this has really,
0: really, truly impacted. It has to be the savers. And that, that kind of leads me into our, our next topic of you know, where do we go from here? Because a lot of our, our clients today are near or at retirement already. And it, it used to be at least probably, what, 10 to 12 years ago, you could get four five, 6% in a CD or a government-backed bond. And today, obviously, that's not the case. That's pushed a lot of retirees or people who are near or close to retirement out into riskier and riskier assets. So with, with all the inflation going on, the starting point with today's interest rates, Bonds are at an all-time high, yields low. Um, where do we go? How do we navigate such an environment uh, for our clients, specifically the ones who are near or at retirement?
1: Yeah, well, as you mentioned, um, you know, we are in a very precarious situation at this point. You have bond prices, corporate bond prices, um, equities—not uh, not across the board, but in large swaths of the U.S. market. Um, are, are at all-time highs. They're incredibly, what we would say, bubbly at this point, and most people understand what that means. They're, they're just um, they're expensive.
0: Well, uh, and, and really you had for a period, well, a few periods here, from 1929 to 1959 where the Dow Jones, if you put putting money in at the top of 1929, didn't get your money back until 1959, 30 years later. Yep. Same thing happened from, from 1966 to 1995. Saw the same thing from 2000, 2007, and on and on and on. It's so important to me, it seems, that you cannot be putting money in at the top, especially if you are near or at retirement, because your years of accumulation are close to end and you don't have that time to make
1: up that that lost capital. Yeah, that's especially true for retirees and those who are close to retirement. But even we would say in terms of people who are in their 20s and 30s today, you may feel like, hey, I've got 30, 40 years until I plan to retire. But there have been periods. Uh, as, as you just mentioned, Joel, there have been 20-year periods numerous times over the last 100 years where the U.S. market did essentially nothing for that period of time. Now, you may have 30 or 40 years until you plan on using your money, but I don't think anybody wants to take 20 of those years and invest in something that's not going to give them any return.
0: Well, and the most important you know, rule of all is don't lose money. So right. even if you have that time frame, like you're saying, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense to be putting money on the top when year from now year and a half, two years from now, it could be 50% off. Yep.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and uh, I want everybody to understand what we're not saying is we're not saying you, you should keep everything in cash um, or you shouldn't invest in any equities at all. Uh, we're simply saying that right now is a time to be more cautious and defensive um, and to look for assets that have value uh, um, over the next three, five, ten years. Um, And that that would be, you know, there are a variety of assets in the global marketplace that are fairly valued today or even cheap. Um, But a big section of the U.S. stock market is not that today. Um, It's incredibly expensive. And our concerns over the next decade or so um, is that people who are dabbling in that right now are kind of dancing on the edge of a cliff, so to speak. Um, and so what we're doing for our clients is really, um, you know, we're trying to play defense. We're trying to be, be cautious. And at the same time, we're, we're looking for those unique opportunities where asset classes are, uh, likely to perform well over the next three, five, 10 years. And they are out there. Um, but, uh, but for anybody who's just thinking they can put their money in an index fund and they'll be fine because the last decade has been great. Um, we would, we would suggest that you, you may be mistaken.
0: Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Well, Hey, I'm going to end today's episode with uh, probably an overused and abused quote uh, by every CEO, uh, investment banker, manager, you name it. But it's a great one, and I think it really illustrates what we do and what, what my dad and you have been able to do over the last 30, 35 years of being in business, and that is skating to where the puck is going and not necessarily going to where it's at. And that's kind of the environment it feels like we're in today is a lot of people are are going to where it is or even where it was. And it just doesn't seem like we can necessarily invest that way moving forward. Yeah, that's exactly right. Excellent. Well, hey, Isaac, I appreciate your time and I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thanks, Joel. That does it for another episode of Breaking Bad Advice. As always, you can find this episode along with the latest newsletters and blogs on planfinancial.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay rational.